Father, thank you for this time. We, we, we thank you for your presence and we delight in your presence. To know that you are in the room is such a privilege. And we, we just collectively pray to say that you are the guest of honor in this place. This is for you. This is because of you. And Lord, as we prepare to open your word and to talk about something that is controversial in our society today, soften our hearts, open our minds, ready our spirits, and open our ears for what you might say. In Christ's name, amen. I say to you today, my friends. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream, (laughs) deeply rooted. In the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream. That one day, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair. A stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning. My country, tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty. Of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died. Land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. And when this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state, in every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spirit. Free at last.
Amen. Yeah, deserves an applause. Turn to Romans chapter 5, please. We'll be there a little later on. I hope that you have enjoyed this series called Fight Club. Uh, And our goal over the last few weeks and this morning is to address uh, some taboo subjects in today's culture and to really discover together uh, in the body of Christ how do we react and how do we respond to certain things at hand among us today in our culture. And I want to remind you, Bill shared six standards in week one that he, he encouraged us to live by in any conversation that, that, that may bring upon uh, disagreement. And these standards have been emailed around by our staff, and, and we've really been encouraged by them to, to say, this is how we interact, and all of these are, are really supported and, and birthed out of, out of Scripture. And some of you may want to write these down just for your marriage as well. But the first is, we're called to value each other as gifts from God and to live and work in respectful relationships. And we're called to seek first to listen and understand before seeking to be understood by someone else. Third, we're called to fairly represent the positions of others. Fourth, We're called to value others above ourselves. Fifth, we're called to foster a climate of honesty and grace. And sixth, we're called to build each other up and not tear each other down. Great standards to have in any conversation that may result in disagreement. And last week, Mike taught, uh, and and he really encouraged us how to interact with one another and dialogue about controversial topics uh, through Second Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So how do we appropriately address our fears and have respect for others, but ask this question that I've been rolling around and around in my mind all week, what does love require of me? Because ultimately, that has to propel my response, love, right? It has to, it has to be founded, built, as Paul says, rooted and established on love. What does love require of me in this situation, in this disagreement? And today, I get to speak about a topic that is really daily broadcasted across our country and our, our world, and it's racism. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking... Well, I'm going to check out now, you know, because I I have great relationships with people that that look differently than me. Stay with me, though, because I believe the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in each one of us today, regardless where you stand or regardless where your fathers or your grandfathers stood. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm kind of new around here. My wife, Andrea, and I recently returned from Africa, where we finalized and brought home, uh, finalized the adoption and brought home two children, Gracia and Andre. So two to four, we went, you know, man to man to zone defense. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of struggles uh, in, this, in this family story of ours, but we, we are just so thankful every morning at about 5.50 a.m. for God's grace. But... Um, our kids are, have a lot of similarities. I mean, they, they have, they're, they're a lot alike in many ways. And I was pleasantly surprised that a lot of the sarcastic games that children play here in the United States are, are really worldwide games. You know, they're like God's gift to parents. Uh, 
um, Andre, with really no training, uh, and, and children's games here started repeating, you know, Ellie one day, the copy game, which, you know, just drives the kid crazy. So 20 minutes later, when we peeled them off of each other and, you know, told them this, this fight's over, I, I was actually pleasantly reminded how similar they are. They do have one noticeable, visible difference. If you haven't noticed it yet, I'll I'll tell you that two of my children possess epidermal strata with melisonites that create carotene in their stratum corneum. And I I don't know exactly what that means, so to simplify it for those of you who don't speak that way, uh, two of my children are white, two of my children are black. Imagine that. that. That's the visible difference. And a few weeks ago, I was talking to to my son, he was sitting on my lap on the couch, and he, and he started to actually, for the first time since he's been home in mid-October, started to dialogue with me about the epidermal diversity that exists in our house. We were watching television together, and he said, look, Daddy, look, a black boy. Now, mind you, he's still learning English, so that's what you're about to hear from me is our dialogue in true form. And I said, Andre, that's right. That is a black boy. And he said, I black boy. You're right. And he said, Daddy, you white. (laughs) I said, yeah. Daddy, I black. You white. And I quickly, you know, took the step of of a father, any, you know, like God-fearing man would respond with something spiritual. So I dug down deep and found something. And I said, Andre, You're right, you are black and I'm white, but when I look at you, I don't see your color. I see my son, and I love my son. And he looked at me, and he was perplexed for a few moments, and looked at my skin, looked at his skin. He goes, okay, Daddy, I your black son. (laughs) (laughs) Right then and there, friends, God spoke to me and ministered to me, and and he And he taught me something that is going to lead me in the way that I parent for the rest of my life. He said to me, Adam, when I look at Andre, I do see his color. You know, I just said, son, I don't see your color. I don't see that you're a black child and I'm a white adult male and that's coming between us. I don't see that. I see my son. And while that's really sweet and tender and all, the Lord said, Adam, you really missed it on this one, bud. When I look at your son, I do see his color. And he said, Adam, when I look at you, I see your color. And I made both of them, and they're both beautiful to me. And I thought, how dare I ever think that it was good for my family to to play naive, like, yeah, I don't see that you're black and I'm white. I do see it, and it's wonderful. It's perfect. God designed it. God created it, and he did a wonderful job. And unfortunately, not everyone is that appreciative of the contrast, the magnificent contrast in God's creation. My, my wife was recently visiting a, a car wash here locally. And my son was, you know, probably being rowdy like a lot of your five-year-old boys do and touching the glass, watching the cars go by. And not long after they were there, the owner came out and started a a conversation with my wife about how my son couldn't be there and asked for her ticket. 
had our vehicle pulled forward and asked her to leave. My wife called me, and I was sitting in my office, and that morning, and she called me, bawling her eyes out on the phone, and that morning, she was actually getting test results from, from some of their blood tests. And my heart sunk to my feet, thinking, oh no, what, what have we discovered here? And when she finally could catch her breath, she explained to me what happened. My first question was, would this have happened? The way the story unfolded, would it have ever happened if this was one of my white daughters? And the answer is absolutely not. Racial discrimination is, is still among us. It's still here today. It's still prevalent in our society. To define racism, and it'll be on the screen, it is the belief that all members of each race possess characteristics or abilities specific to that race that distinguish it as inferior or superior to another race or races. And as I said earlier, you may feel very removed from this issue. It's not an everyday conversation for you, maybe. But it is for our nation and for our world. Just turn on the television. It's being talked about on a daily basis. I was very close to the the Oklahoma football team when I was in Norman ministering and spent a lot of time in the locker room. And you all know what happened on campus there in recent months. And that was an everyday deal for me. I felt like for hours at a time I was on campus ministering to football players and I saw black football players and white football players who were brothers on the field and did life together and then one thing was said on a fraternity bus and these men who did life together and loved one another were now turning on one another. And I was caught in the middle of this situation thinking, God, how is this happening? How, how did we get here? Turn on the television ever since August 2014 when we saw what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Racism has resurfaced as a household conversation because a white police officer shot an unarmed black teenager. And now it's something that we talk about on a daily basis. And Michael Brown being unarmed started riots and protests against the police and looting around the city, and then the officer was not prosecuted. When the news broke that the officer was not prosecuted, it, it just resulted uh, in another wave, an entirely new wave of protests in and around their city. More recently, uh, Peyton Head, the, the president of the Missouri Students Association, was was called a racial slur by fellow classmates that were driving down campus, rolled their window down, and said something hateful to him. And it really frustrated him, and he wanted to make a stand and and change the culture of their campus, and it resulted in hunger strikes. Kids literally saying, I refuse to eat until something changes. The Missouri football team said they're not going to play next season unless something significant changes, costing the university a million dollars every Saturday for forfeiting their football game. And after the hunger strikes and the football games and all the marching on campuses, stopping a campus parade, screaming at the university president, the students then demanded his resignation. And on November 9th, University of Missouri President Tim Wolf resigned. And USA Today had an article that read, How did we get here? As I was sitting in the locker room in Norman this earlier this last year saying, How did we get here? How did we get in this place? And some of you might be thinking, 
What was the result of your family's situation? I'll tell you. I was furious to hear my wife cry because she was mistreated and my children were told to leave a local business. I found out my daughter cried her eyes out the entire time. It broke me. I actually remember thinking, Brandon's sitting here and was thinking of calling him, saying, you have no idea what my pulse is right now. Is this healthy? (laughs) I was furious. I was scared. I was so angry. And, And everybody that we shared that with were just a few people that first week. They're like, let's go down there, you know, let's go hold signs outside and let's shut them down. Let's Let's, let's take over, you know, and I tell my dad what happened. He's like, give me the address, son, you know, and it's like this whole thing unfolding because instinctively that's what this creates in us, this anger and this rage. And so guess what I did? I went down there and I walked in and I stood in line and when I got up there, I said, are you the owner? She said, yes, I am. And I said, hey, you may remember my, my beautiful wife was here a little over a month ago, my two ch- children were with her, and uh, they were black. You told them to leave. Do you remember that? She said, yeah, can we talk in private? So I follow her away from the register down the hall, and we began to talk about what happened. And, and I said, let me just explain why I'm here. Whatever your beef was that day between you and my son is between you and God. But I'm here because... I owe you money, and that's between me and God. I said, I know that you didn't finish my wife's car wash because you were sending them out, but what your staff did finish was exceptional work. And I can't go another day without paying for the work that you did on our vehicle. I'd like to pay for that right now, please. And with tears in her eyes, she began to apologize, and I interrupted her, and I said, ma'am, no apology necessary. See, as Christians, we have Christ in our heart. We forgive others just as Christ forgave us. We don't need an apology. You, you have already been forgiven. And as a matter of fact, we have love in our heart for you. And to add to it, we've been praying for you. And we want God's best for you. And then I followed her to the register and paid for a $32 car wash. And as I drove away that day, I knew I could go home with that situation resolved as far as it was on my family. But the awesome thing is that situation's just starting for her life. And I know that the Holy Spirit's ministering to her every day. And I believe that God wants great things for her despite how she might treat others. All throughout Scripture, we see standards in how we ought to interact with one another. Bill shared all of those standards, that list I shared earlier. And one of them is to value others above ourselves. That's from Philippians 2. In Proverbs 24, we read that it's not good to show partiality in our judgment. James tells us that if we show preference for one person over another, that we're actually committing a sin. In Colossians, we read that there is no Gentile or Jew, no slave or free man, no barbarian, no Scythian, but Christ is all and is in all. And Paul urges us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and to honor one another above yourselves. And I'm just scratching my head thinking, how in the world has anyone ever held the holy text God's word, the Bible, and mistreated someone because of the color of their skin, maybe not even mistreated them, just looked down on them inside their spirit. 
Because clearly it is evident in Scripture that we are to honor one another above ourselves, value one another above ourselves, not show partiality of any kind or favoritism for one over another. In Romans 5, we see this passage that I've been looking at all week. It's been stirring in my heart, and I want to read that to you from the NIV, and I want to look at the amplified version of that as well. This is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice. Everyone say rejoice. Come on, say it rejoicing. Rejoice. In the hope of the glory of God. Listen to the Amplified. Therefore, since we've been justified, that is, acquitted of sin, declared blameless before God by faith, let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God and the joy of reconciliation with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed. Verse 2, through Him, we also have access by faith into this remarkable state of grace, listen to this, in which we firmly and safely and securely stand. i got to read that again. Through him we also have access by faith into this remarkable state of grace in which we firmly and safely and securely stand. Let us rejoice in our hope and the confident assurance of experiencing and enjoying the glory of our great God, the manifestation of his excellence and power. You might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with racism? Glad you asked. As I read this, I was thinking in my head of the many numerators that exist within the equation of humanity. Skin color being a significant one. Gender, your intellect or, or your political views, your vocation, your socioeconomic status, your passions, your interests, your physical appearance, even your alma mater. There are such a variety of numerators that exist within the equation of humanity. But think about the common denominators that exist right here in Scripture, available to all. It doesn't matter where you stand on everything I just said on the top of the equation, but the common denominator, despite our differences, justification through faith, peace with God, access to grace and reason to rejoice. How could we ever allow our differences to take our eyes and our focus off of the similarities that exist within humanity, this offer from Christ to all people, justification through faith, peace with God, access to grace, and reason to rejoice. And I love this phrase in this passage, grace in which we stand. I wrote that on my whiteboard this week, and I stared at it for an awkward amount of time thinking, wow, the grace that we stand in, what does that mean? What does that look like to be a man who stands in grace and along the lines of 
racial prejudice that exists in our country today because we stand in grace. I can't look at other people and discriminate against them because of our differences, but I celebrate our differences. Because I stand in grace, I'm a new creation. So any thoughts that I had of anyone else pre-Christ are now dead. They've gone to the cross. The old is gone. The new has come and I'm not going back. Because I stand in grace, my message to other people is a message of reconciliation. It's a message of freedom and not bondage. Because I stand in grace, my tongue is committed to speaking equality among all people. My tongue is committed to speaking harmony and not judgment, and not disagreement, and not differences. Because I stand in grace, I can walk into a car wash who offended my wife and my children, mistreated them, and I can offer love and not hatred. That's because I stand in grace. And as people today, I I, I want you to, to, to listen to this next statement and know that I've bathed it in prayer, but what I think our society does not need today is another protest against racism. Now, while the message is true, and while I believe in the message of racial equality, every time I turn on the television and I see a protest, I hear hatred, and I see anger, and I hear violence in their voices, and I see this this fighting spirit, this retaliation for what's been done. And we don't need any more of that. We don't need any more protest against racism. What I want you to know, I think the body of Christ needs to step up. Here's what we do need. We need the body of Christ to promote gracism. No more protests against racism. How about Christians promote gracism? Let's make a big deal of, of, of grace. What, is it, what does it mean for you and for me to be a gracist today? You know, you're thinking, all right, I want, I want, I'm not a racist, but I want to be a gracist. I don't want to be in this neutral zone of not doing anything significant to promote equality among people. Maybe being a gracist for you today is to acknowledge that all of your friends look just like you. I mean, the people that you hold dearly and spend the majority of your time with are people just like you. Extend your hand across the lines of race. Befriend somebody from a different background, from a different people group. And let's not let them feel marginalized in our society any longer. Let's cross those racial lines. Maybe being a gracist is to commit to talking to your, your children and your grandchildren about racial discrimination among our society. Maybe it's acknowledging what your father taught you or your grandfather taught you, and you're going to say today, right here and now, I'm putting a stop to it. Because really it's trash. There's, there's no discrimination in my heart towards anyone else. And it's not letting your kids formulate their opinion of racial equality based on what they see on CNN and the riots and, and, and the protests in the streets. And you're not going to let your children formulate their opinion of racial equality by what they click on their homepage on Facebook. But maybe you might sit down with them, open the word of God, read the principles of scripture to them and commit as a family, as a mom a dad, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a mentor, whoever, to help people receive this pure, this pure view and standard of racial equality based on the word of God. Maybe being a gracist today is saying, I'm going to commit to these six standards that we've talked about in this series in my conversations about racism in our world 
today I'm going to listen. I'm going to pray. Being a gracist is committing to praying. It's not seeing what's happening on TV and saying, well, that's too bad, but it's not happening right here on 101st, so it's no big deal to me. But being a gracist is seeing what's happening to families across this world, getting on your knees in private and crying out to your Father in heaven and saying, Lord, I've had enough. Please, God. Please, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, we need more of him, Lord. Help me to know how to be an advocate for all people. A gracist is a praying person. You remember when I mentioned the medical sentence that I'm still unsure what it means to just explain the, dis- the, the visible difference between my children? I'll remind you. Uh, two of them possess epidermal strata with melisonites that create carotene in the stratum corneum. It's true. And I was thinking about this this week, and I had to do a lot of research because I didn't do so hot in school when it came to medical and science stuff. It really actually did a horrible job. So I was researching this, and I learned a lot. Because what's really funny about this epidermal stratum that makes my children black versus producing white skin on me is that it's actually a dead layer of skin. It's a dead layer. So is yours. So is mine. The epidermis does not actually have a direct blood supply. The cells that are visible right now to our eyes have been removed through a process called desquamation. Millions of these dead cells have been sent to the surface to be worn off, to be let go of, to die. You, you actually replace your epidermal layer every 35 to 45 days. And friends, I've traveled all around the world, and I have dear brothers and sisters in Christ of many colors. And I have two children that look very differently than I do. But I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that mentions that we are a royal priesthood. And it dawned upon me that we've allowed something that is dead, like our skin, to come between us rather than being united by something that makes us alive, like the blood of Christ in our veins. Let's look beyond the surface when we see other people. Let's not focus on what's dead on the outside. Let's focus on what's alive on the inside, that we are a part of a royal priesthood, that the blood of Christ is alive in us 